Ilya Krivosheyev, Urban Legend. Greek Fire, Constantinople, 7th century. Chapter 1. Hangover. In the middle of the night, already in the pre-dawn hours, a silhouette appeared at the walls of the city. A certain man, unleashing abuse on the watchmen at the gates of the city walls, fell out of the city with a scandal and, muttering under his breath, headed towards the Golden Horn Bay. He was drunk and could hardly keep his feet. Nevertheless, staggering, he reached the shore, vomited and, obeying weakness, fell on the coastal stones, falling asleep. Plunging into the kingdom of Morpheus. And dawn prevailed over Constantinople. The sea surface was covered with a pre-dawn haze, in which flying seagulls and fishing boats were already submerged. Life in the city, as always, woke up with the rising sun. The man lying on the stone coast woke up from the first rays of the sun, groaning and moaning from a heavy hangover. His clothes were expensive, which means he belonged to high society. A fishing boat moored to the shore, in which there was an old bearded fisherman, unloading his morning catch. The fisherman saw a rich man lying and groaning and went to him to find out what had happened and offer help. Seeing how heavy the hangover was for the rich man, the fisherman uncorked his jug of wine and handed it to him. Here, have a drink. The rich man drank and thoughts returned to his head and speechless to his lips. Thank you, kind man. The rich man croaked. Good fisherman. What's your name? Ivan, the fisherman introduced himself. Tell me, Ivan. Do you know who I am? Him, the fisherman grinned. It is clear that you are a courtier. Wow! How this old man's eye sparkles, the rich man thought. Apparently he is cunning and wise. So, with such a conversation, I can. Right. I am Leo Deacon. Advisor to the emperor and his chronicler. And what is the imperial advisor? intoxicated with wine, doing in the fishing bay at such an early hour. I fled from the city at night. I ran away from myself. I do not know why. I have grief. What kind of grief? I lost my life, you know. I don't want to live. You are still young and strong, but you do not want to live. What happened? The meaning is lost in everything. There is no happiness either in personal life or in business. A series of failures, one after another, have befallen me for the past two years. First my wife died and problems began in my family. And in the palace, the division of power began between the emperor and his brothers, Tiberius and Heraclius. Intrigues are woven in the palace. Everyone shares power and lands. My appeals to appeal to reason are in vain. And therefore the people are poor and tortured. When power is shared in the palace, the people are always hungry, aching. Dumb. Lazy. The people are like a burden. Looking at this disgrace, which has been going on for more than a year and does not end, confusion and melancholy overcomes me. Besides me. Our emperor is also concerned. He knows that everyone has forgotten about the dangers that lie in wait for us. Bulgarians and Arabs do not sleep. They are ready to attack from both sides. That's what they need to think about, not the power to share. You didn't surprise me, Ivan said. I remember. This strife was always. Everything has its time. There is a time for war and for peace. You just do what you have to. I know. But longing does not leave me that life is no longer interesting for me. I don't know what to do with myself. The fisherman's eye sparkled again. Now I'll tell you a story. Maybe it will be interesting for you. Chapter 2. Flight of the Engineer. Kalanik was of Greek origin, but spent his entire adult life in the Syrian Heliopolis. 
His grandfather, who was born in Thessaloniki, was a good engineer and architect, as he passed his school of craft training in his youth in Constantinople. After receiving excellent practice and training in the capital, Kalinik's grandfather was sent to Syrian Heliopolis as a professional builder and architect to build and maintain Roman temples. Kalinik followed in the footsteps of his grandfather. Becoming an architect and engineer, having inherited this craft from him. Kalinik has become as professional as his grandfather, thanks to hard work and love for the profession. Kalinik's life passed quietly, peacefully and serenely, in labor and family concerns. Once, on a cool winter night, a small caravan of Semitic merchants of 12 people who were traveling from Samarkand to Constantinople on their business affairs, stopped for the night in the house of Kalinik. This silk road on horses with carts for merchants passed through Heliopolis. Many families of Heliopolis offered parking and lodging to merchants and traders on their way to Constantinople. This service cost a certain fee, which for the family was a good share of the family budget. But on that cool night there was an irreparable frustration. It was the end of winter. But the night was very cold and there was nothing to heat the stove with. It was a difficult year, and there was no opportunity to stock up on fuel for the future, there was not enough firewood. Apologizing to the guests, Kalanick was about to send him to the neighboring yard, to another family, when one of the merchants, the eldest, said, Don't worry. We can make a fire that will burn all night and warm the house. We only ask you for a stove vase, in which we will light a fire. Kalanick found a vase for making a fire. The senior merchant pulled out a small box from his sack, which contained small sealed jugs filled with some kind of thick liquid. The guest poured a few drops of dark liquid from one jug into a vase and a few drops of gray liquid from another jug, then threw a small piece of tow into this mixture. The tow smoked for several minutes, and then a furious flame burst out with a crackle. The fire blazed, illuminating and heating all the space around. Kalanick with his wife and two sons were very surprised when they saw this trick. Well, said the amazing guest, now we have a fire that will warm us. And it will not go out for a long time. Several days. I recognize sulfur and tow, said the surprised Kalanick. And what kind of dark liquid is that? Oil. The merchant exclaimed proudly. The guests stayed in the house for two days. During these two days, Kalanick found out from the guests that oil is a natural black liquid that is found in the fertile lands of Mesopotamia. There, following from Samarkand, travelers accidentally discovered this liquid. And then they found out that the liquid is flammable and difficult to extinguish. Aren't you afraid? The engineer asked the merchants. To follow this silk road, bypassing Mesopotamia. The land is restless there, and the time is not easy. Heavy. Belligerent. The Arabs each year come closer to the Roman Empire. It is possible that soon they will attack us. We are scared and think that we should flee to Constantinople. Aren't you scared? No. Why be afraid of life? One must either live or die. When the merchants left the house of Kalanick, he thought a lot about them and their trick with fire. And then a threat loomed over Heliopolis. The Arabs advanced. And the inhabitants fled to escape captivity. Kalanick with his family also fled. Together with other fugitives, they reached Cilicia by sea on merchant rafts. And from there by land caravan to Constantinople, where his grandfather's brother Ivan lived, he was a fisherman. Chapter 3. Decree of the Emperor. Leo Deacon entered a small fishing house with Ivan and saw the Kalanick family. Kalanick was a bearded man in his forties with a frown on his forehead. 
Thoughtfully he was going through some papers with drawings and diagrams. His wife was in the kitchen making breakfast. Their two sons, shouting and frolicking, played war with wooden swords. This is my great-nephew, Engineer Kalanick, who arrived from Heliopolis, Ivan said. Greetings. Your Excellency, said Kalanick. Hello to you and your home, Leo said. Well, Ivan told me your story, and I am interested in your invention. This is a fiery weapon that you are working on. Exactly, Kalanick said, pointing to his papers and drawings. The incident with the self-igniting mixture, which occurred in my house in Heliopolis, gave me the idea that it is possible to create such an invincible weapon. Spewing out furious flames of fire that cannot be extinguished, and direct it to enemies and conquerors. From Heliopolis, I fled to Constantinople to save my family. And also to offer the emperor the idea of creating a fire weapon. I designed such a weapon in my drawings. Well, you're lucky you met me, Leo said. The idea of creating such a weapon interested me very much. It can serve our empire well. Therefore, I will help you build this weapon. Tomorrow, after Sunday service in the Cathedral of Sophia, I will invite you to an audience with the Emperor, where you will have to present your idea to the Emperor and the sages of our empire. Thank you, my generous benefactor, said Kalanick. Kalanick was encouraged. Leo Deacon was also encouraged. He forgot his sorrows because he was looking forward to a great thing. Sunday service in the Cathedral of Sophia ended at lunchtime. Accompanied by a magnificent, pacifying choral singing of psalms and spiritual hymns. The people dispersed, the clergy completed the ritual and the Emperor Constantine with his retinue and the Patriarch retired to the Basilica. There an appointment was made with Leo Deacon and the engineer Kalanick. Your Excellency, said Kalanick. Now I am holding a vessel with oil in my hands. What is oil? Black wetlands are sometimes found on the shelves of the Aegean Sea and the eastern Mediterranean coast. This is oil. Oil has amazing properties that can win both your hearts and the whole world. Oil is real gold for us. I'm sure oil has a great future. With this, you can light a fire that even water will not put out. And I will demonstrate this to you now. Kalanick poured oil and sulfur into a bowl, and then threw a wad of tow. The mixture began to smoke and then burst into flames. The flames were intense. Kalanick began pouring water from a jug into this flame, but it did not go out. The high public who watched this experiment appreciated the engineer's actions and agreed that it was an amazing fire. And how can such a fire be used against barbarians, and not to our detriment? Asked Emperor Constantine. I suggest using it in the navy, the engineer continued. We have to make cannons with this fire on ships. I command Leo Deacon and the engineer Kalanick to start making fire weapons according to the plan of the engineer Kalanick. I bless this great deed. Said the emperor. I'll go about my business. In the following months, Leo Deacon and Kalanick passionately engaged in their invention, calling on the best minds and working hands of Constantinople to help and the Emperor Constantine dealt with his two brothers by cutting off their noses. Chapter 4. Unsuccessful Campaign. The Arabs were already deeply rooted in the east and continued to advance in the west. It was difficult for the Byzantines to restrain them. And they gave up their positions. Years of land wars led the Arab Caliphate to unconditional victories, filling it with lands and untold riches. The situation at sea was the same. Young and not numerous, but passionary Arab fleet crashed numerous Byzantine ships. On that fateful time, the Arab fleet, led by the Caliph Muawi, 
sailed to Constantinople to attack the nest of the infidels. Having crossed the Dardanelles and went out into the Sea of Marmara, Muawi suspected something bad. And his fears were confirmed when the city walls appeared on the horizon. At the city walls, the Arab fleet was met by several ships. Caliph Muawi was surprised that there was peace and serenity around. In confusion of feelings, he gave the order to attack. In ten minutes the Arab fleet was defeated. The copper pipes of the Byzantine ships, which were installed on the stern, released flaming tongues of fire from their vents. All Arab ships were submerged in deadly fire. The people who were on these ships were also destroyed by fire. Wanting to save their lives, they jumped into the water, but this was not salvation. Because the fire continued to burn even on the surface of the sea. Dragons! shouted Muawi madly when he saw this fire. He ordered to retreat. And the dragons continued to shoot. Only a few managed to survive that battle. Chapter 5. Dialogue. Leo Deacon and Kalanick sat in the boat and fished. We've created a great weapon, Leo said. And we killed a lot of people. And melancholy overcomes me. Is it the same melancholy that was with you when we met? No, this is another longing. I was happy when I was building this weapon. But now I understand that this is a dangerous weapon. People need to learn how to handle it properly. This fire can be not only for the good, but also for the grief. We will do what we have to, and everything will be as it will. Crazy from Petersburg. St. Petersburg, our days. My name is Ignat Poprihan. And I live in Petersburg. No. I was not born here, I have only been here for six years. And I was born and raised in a small Ural town. I was not a simple youth. All the time I was drawn to some kind of adventure, I constantly threw myself into some revels and drinking parties. Tried to be among my friends' comrades a joker. And in fact, I was a merry fellow for my friends. And from them, in turn, I received an incomparable feeling of love, recognition, admiration and even admiration. Subconsciously, of course, at least I thought so. But that was a happy, carefree student time. And at first everything seemed to be going well, and life was wonderful. I thought I was a wonderful person, and I thought my friends thought so too. However, very soon the veil of my delusion fell. There was a tendency to distance my friends from me. Which I really didn't like. And then I tried to accuse them of becoming boring and mediocre people. And in response they either fell silent and hurried to leave, or they said, Ignat. It is good to toil with foolishness and go crazy, finally get down to business. And so gradually we broke off communication, everyone was now busy with their own business. And Sergei, my closest friend, once drinking with me, even said, Ignat, you are a great dude, with you it is interesting, not boring. But, the more I get to know you, the more I understand that you do not value us all. It feels like you consider yourself the coolest, the smartest and we are your lackeys. I was offended, of course. And I had a fight with him. I didn't want to admit it to myself or to him, although I understood that he was right. And then I got bored. I wanted something more, I wanted to feel life like a feast. And I left for St. Petersburg, believing that there, in a free city on the Neva, in the cultural capital, I will certainly be happy. As they say, I will find myself. In St. Petersburg, my movement began. I often changed my place of residence and work. I lived in different hostels and rented cheap, scary rooms in old houses. I happened to work as a sales assistant in various stores, and as a waiter. 
and is a bartender, and is a loader in various warehouses. In general, I shook from place to place a lot and saw a lot. And I spent my free time and free money on bars, concerts, nightclubs. Where I met new people and looked for girls for a night. And I must admit that the first year of living in St. Petersburg was wonderful for me. I was delighted with him. Felt myself involved in the great affairs of the great city. Intoxicating freedom intoxicated, I was happy. However, the illusions gradually dissipated. And there was a reason for that. It's money. This was catastrophically not enough for that well-fed and interesting life that I wanted so much. And the needs were constantly growing. Because these were the needs of my new friends and girlfriends, and I had to be like them in everything in order to keep them close to me, as wonderful as I am. And then the relentless and merciless race of time began. Friends changed. Faces changed. Everything changed so quickly that it was not possible to keep track of everything. I started to get tired of this race. I started to see a lot of injustice. And to save myself from this fatigue, I turned into a rather cynical person. Viciously grinning at everything that was happening around. I don't feel anything. I don't trust anyone. I don't love anyone. I don't dream of anything. I don't expect anything good from life. As much as I can, I just earn money for my needs, and life rolled on a knurled rut, not bringing any pleasure. Only outward sarcasm saved me, as if I was not crazy. Like most of the inhabitants of this city, but a normal person with whom you can quite communicate. But now there was longing inside me. Yesterday was city day. I had a day off. And in order to unwind from the overflowing gloomy thoughts, I decided to take a walk along Nevsky Prospect. There was liveliness on the avenue, which, of course, made me happy. Because it is the people scurrying through the streets that create the festive atmosphere, despite the fact that I do not really like people themselves, if they do not notice and do not admire me. Yes. Now I easily admit this to myself, as I once did not admit to Sergei. I stopped at the intersection of Nevsky Prospect and the Gribyedov Canal, opposite the House of Books. Looking at this house, I thought, well, Durov is a fine fellow. So well done that I would not even mind being in your place. He created, you know, the conductor, felt himself the master of all of us and moved to the singer house under the arches of this globe. Apparently, indeed, a man with Napoleonic ambitions, since he wished to sit under this globe, as if the globe was spinning on his finger. As our master, it's amazing that he doesn't preach to us yet. And then like heaven heard my thoughts. Just on the top floor, under the globe, from the window, Mr. Durov himself appeared, wearing a cap. He said something, laughed, waved his pen to the people passing by him, and then began to launch paper airplanes onto the avenue. After a moment, I noticed a revival. The crowd began to gather at the house of books and catch paper airplanes issued by Durov. I guessed it was money. Not realizing my actions. I quickly crossed the road and rushed into this crowd with some special zeal, helping myself to advance with my elbows, in order to also catch at least a few paper airplanes of this endless stream. God's grace. I was pleased with the free money, and even got drunk with joy that evening. The next morning, I woke up with a headache, mixed feelings and rather lousy mood. Remembering yesterday's situation, I felt awkward and sick. It's like I'm a helpless animal cornered. A week later, the Snob magazine published an article by Durov, which I read. Those looking for castles, sports car parks and a Boeing fleet in my life will be sorely disappointed. I have no planes, cars or houses. My world is walking and taking the subway. 
as well as sleeping in a rented room measuring 18 to 20 square meters. Those who would like to change places with me will also have to completely abandon alcohol, meat and expensive clothes. For more than 10 years, since the time when I was a very poor student, I never tire of repeating, money is overvalued, because creation is much more interesting than consumption. And the internal state is incommensurably more important than the external. As soon as you make a cult out of money and exchange to be, for, to seem, you are sending yourself into voluntary slavery. Debts due to status tinsel, boring work with dull cowards, the need to lie and betray your world, these are just part of the price you pay for an excessive desire for paper. We refuse to accept a world in which people can fight and betray their humanity for money. If there are people who agree to this, their behavior should be severely ostracized. In no case taken is logical. A society in which violence for the sake of money is acceptable and understandable cannot last long. The most terrible sin among fans of the cult of money is to throw money down the drain in the literal sense. Adherents of the Golden Calf read the news about buying yachts from a small town or cars for $2 million with understanding. But launching into free flight a thousand times less will destroy their worldview and erode their value foundation. A foundation of false values that predetermined unhealthy social norms that justify true waste and violence for the sake of paper. There is an ancient saying, the slave does not want to find freedom. He wants to have his own slaves. A person cannot become truly free as long as he exists in the dead-end paradigm, slave, master. In this system, any master is someone's slave. And any slave is someone's master. Remaining a slave to money, it is impossible to become the true master of your own life. Pavel Durov. After reading this, I grinned. I don't know what purpose Durov pursued. Maybe he really signed up as a preacher, but he proved to me that I am an insignificant beast, wanting only money, food, a well-fed and beautiful life. But not a wonderful and highly cultured person, which I have always considered myself to be. I felt it on my own skin. I remembered my student life, I remembered my Petersburg years and felt ashamed. I was ashamed of myself, ashamed of all the senselessness of my existence. Shame and bitterness, that's what I felt at that moment. I was also angry with Durov. I hated him at that moment. Because he laughed at me so mercilessly. I imagined how I would blow up the ill-fated office of Durov, and this globe, thrown out by an explosive stream, would roll down Nevsky Prospect, to hell. I do not know what will happen to me next, which track my life will follow, where the track will turn. Will I stay in St. Petersburg or return to my hometown? And what will I do next? What do I want from life? I don't know. I won't get into the noose yet. I'm not crazy yet. However, the ice has already broken. Now I am not the same ideal guy as I thought I was. Now I am the same half-crazy person, like all the inhabitants of this ill-fated city. Jewish escape. Krakow. 15th century. Sarah has always been a wicked girl. Her peers did not love her, but respected her. And if someone did not respect, then he was simply afraid. Therefore, she was not disturbed for no reason. But she paid for her difficult character with the absence of friends. But this circumstance did not upset her, she just learned not to be upset about it. She was not at all interested in being friends with the guys from the community. She called the boys stupid turkeys for their sluggishness and excessive helpfulness to their elders. And girls are stupid chickens for their great love of gossip and squabbles. She liked to spend much more time in the city itself, behind Warwell, watching the course of that life.
and she did it with pleasure all her childhood. And for this she often received slaps from her father. But she steadfastly endured punishment and fought off any attacks. So she earned a reputation as a hysterical and brawler, with whom it is better not to have anything to do with. And while the Jewish community lived its own life in Kazimietz, Sarah, meanwhile, spent her youth in Krakow. Often on Shabbat, Sarah moved to the other bank of the Vistula, beyond the Wawel. Very soon she already knew almost every resident in the city, they also knew her. With someone she found a common language and made friends, and with someone she quarreled and fought. However, Sarah loved Krakow. She really liked to walk with her new friends and girlfriends. Hooligans from the market, in such a magnificent and luxurious city of Krakow, among these newly built palaces, to watch royal processions and feasts on holidays. This shine and chic attracted Sarah so much that she involuntarily thought, this is life. Beautiful and interesting. Not like ours. In our gloomy community. When Sarah turned into a tall and beautiful girl, at some city feast she met the crown prince, who also liked to have fun with his friends. It was passion at first sight. It seemed that these two were created for each other, like two elements, water and fire. And life spun in a stream of love and secret dates. This continued until the lovers decided to get married. Sarah's father, Ezekiel, noticed that his daughter had often run away in the evenings in the city lately, and he wanted to punish and restrain her. But what could this old man do against a strong and obstinate woman? What has become his beloved daughter? Ezekiel foresaw trouble. One day, without returning home to spend the night, and making her parents very anxious, Sarah came in the morning, packed her things and presented her parents with a fact. Mom and Dad, I'm leaving home. I am marrying Prince Wenceslas. And since I know that you will not give your blessing to my chosen one, and the community will curse me, I have to leave you. The distraught parents started shouting, scolding, groaning and lamenting. Restraining their daughter, but everything was useless. Sarah brushed off her parental abuse, ignored all their arguments and continued to pack her few things into a bag. And Sarah's younger sister at that time managed to run to the neighboring yard and talk about what was happening. Soon the whole community learned about Sarah's trick, and even the rabbi. Indignant at this unheard of insolence, the rabbi himself went to Ezekiel's house. When Sarah went out into the courtyard, accompanied by the roar and cry of her parents, the whole community, led by the rabbi, was already waiting for her. Sarah, the rabbi spoke up in his stern voice, is it true that you're running to town to marry the royal prince? Yes it's true. What? Will you teach me now that I am a sinner? The people standing in the courtyard and witnessing what was happening, whispered and whispered in indignation, as Sarah spoke insolently and disrespectfully with the rabbi. The rabbi raised his hand, muffled the rumble of the crowd and continued, I see you know you are doing the wrong thing. Then you should also know that if you run away to the Goyim, you will be cursed once and for all by the community. The road to your parents will be closed to you forever. No chance of coming back, you hear? And then you will have to survive on your own among the Goyim. And do you trust them? Apparently, you don't know them well. Think it over, daughter, before it's too late. Think about it. I knew that all of you would read me morals. Not surprising. All my life I have only heard morals from you. How bad I am. Not restrained. Let the whole community go to hell. I'm fed up with you. Ah. The crowd was horrified by such words. A. 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 Girl. You are not yourself. The rabbi lamented. You are sending yourself to certain death. What are you doing? 
You fool. Where does so much anger and hatred towards us come from? Have we ever hurt you? And what do you think? Didn't you poison my existence? Weren't you whispering behind my back? Pointing accusingly at me? I'm sorry, mom and dad, that I will never see you again. And only you, my parents, I apologize for the bitterness that brought you. But I do not want to live among those who do not love me and condemn me. I will live where I feel good, where they will love me and not be judged. This is my choice. Farewell. The crowd parted and Sarah stepped out onto the road. Soon a royal carriage drove up and took Sarah to the royal castle. The Jewish community watched the fugitive and cursed. What happened next? Sarah did not marry the prince, because neither the king nor the courtiers could allow this and in every possible way prevented this. And Sarah had to live in Warwell as a concubine. A year later, she gave birth to a son to Prince Wenceslas, which further shook her position in the palace. Everyone was against her, and the prince soon lost interest in her. No longer wishing to vegetate and suffer in the palace chambers, she made a small adventure, as a result of which she stole some of the royal jewels and fled to Venice with her two-year-old son. In Venice, she settled in the Jewish community, soon got married. Together with her husband, she was engaged in commercial affairs. She corresponded with her parents. Of course. In her letters she repented and asked for forgiveness, but she did not regret anything. She always believed she was doing the right thing. Several years later, when Sarah became a wealthy woman, she, along with her family, husband and three children, visited Kazimierz and saw her parents before their death. Palace Intrigue. Vienna, 19th century. I lost. Shouted the Marquis Maria Bouchon. You understand, Wolfgang, this is the end. I'm broke. What should I do now? The Marquise was throwing hysterics. Lying on the floor and wiping her tear-stained eyes with a handkerchief. Opposite. Leaning against the fireplace, with a glass of wine stood her old friend Wolfgang, a ruined aristocrat. A well-known gigolo in palace circles and a court pianist. Wolfgang looked at the tragedy played out by the Marquise without much interest and did not express a desire to participate and sympathize with the poor thing. Well, what can I offer you? Dear Maria. Started Wolfgang. Contact Baron von Feuerbach. You are his favorite. At least they were until recently, as far as I know. He should help you. The fact of the matter is that it's useless. I've already tried it. She went from raw to hiss of the Marquis. I spoke to him today, about two hours ago. The cunning old Baron, you see, is tired of wasting his precious time on boring and withering whores like me, as he put it. He pushed me away, as if he had completely forgotten what had connected us so recently. He said that he was madly in love with his newly made young wife, Cutie Ilza. This is the daughter of the Duchess of Eichhorn. He called her a pure angel, not like me. And the Marquise again burst into tears. I understand your bitter condition, Marquis, Wolfgang murmured in a sympathetic tone, but how can I really help you with anything? Except to listen to you and regret. Sure you can. The Marquis perked up. You just have to help me, Wolfgang. In the name of our long-standing friendship. In the name of everything that connects us. You must seduce the silly young Ilza. Why is that? Wolfgang was dumbfounded. So that he quickly becomes disillusioned with his young angel. Do you understand? Then he will come running to me for consolation. And he will ask for forgiveness, and will do everything I ask him for. Then I will finally get out of this oppressive state. The Marquis continued to roar and tearfully beg Wolfgang for help. 
This scene took place in one of the remote boudoirs of the Hofburg, just during the annual imperial ball, where all the Austrian nobility would gather. And this scene, with the sobs of the Marquise and the consolations of Wolfgang, could have gone on for a long time. If the doors of the boudoir had not flung open and society had not entered the room. A small society, namely, the young Baroness Ilse von Feuerbach, her mother, the Duchess of Eichhorn. The gendarmerie headquarters and two gendarmes, as well as the Dellingshausen, Zedelmann and Winterhalter families, who in this case acted as witnesses. The Marquis and Wolfgang were at a loss when they saw the newcomers. There she is. The Duchess of Eichhorn shouted, pointing to the Marquis. What's happening? The Marquis was frightened. What are you all doing here? Marquis Maria Buschen, the staff officer of the Imperial Gendarmerie officially proclaimed, you are accused of the murder of Baron von Feuerbach, who, according to doctors, was found stabbed to death about two hours ago in the northern part of the Hofburg. All witness testimony points to your meeting and a noisy quarrel with the Baron. Just about three hours ago. We have to detain you. Follow us to the gendarmerie. Such an accusation was a real blow to the Marquis. Because she knew for a fact that she hadn't killed the Baron. When the Marquise comes to her senses from the shock she experienced, of course, she will guess that she was set up, scapegoated, taking advantage of the situation. But at the moment she could not understand anything. How could you, Maria? Wolfgang was indignant and staggered away from his friend. Why did you kill the Baron? I didn't kill. The Marquis wondered. You killed? The gendarmerie headquarters officer said clearly. Evidence of that is the corpse of the Baron. And of course, take a look at the hem of your dress. Isn't it bloodstained? The doctors will probably tell the imperial court whose blood is on your dress. Now follow with us. I don't understand anything, cried the Marquis. What's going on here? What kind of lawlessness? I didn't kill anyone. The Marquise was not the kind of woman who faints in unforeseen situations. She tried to resist, but it was useless, they put her in a cage. In the following months of the trial, the Marquis could not prove her innocence, everything testified against her. Society sentenced the Marquis to be hanged. A year later, at the same ball, in the same boudoir, the young widow Ilse von Feuerbach and Alphonse Wolfgang met. Do you remember what we did at the last ball? Young Ilse asked Wolfgang in a whisper. Of course, dear. Wolfgang answered kissing his beloved, also in a whisper. They were lovers and skillfully hid their secrets from society. No one ever guessed about their relationship. For the resourcefulness of the treachery knows no boundaries. Ghost. Prague. The Fabulous Middle Ages. A long time ago, the young man Janusz lived in the city of Prague. He was born a poor man and a fool in a small village near Prague, where he did not have to stay long. Janus's father, a former shepherd, was a severe drunkard, he often beat his son. Janusz, who had long thought of running away from his father, stole the last few coins from his house and set off on his way to Prague. Having rushed around the city for two weeks in search of some work and lodging, he managed to ask for a job as an apprentice to one very greedy and grumpy weaver. Janus's life with a craftsman was harsh, you can't call it sweet. But a year of hard work has paid off. Janus earned the trust of the artisan, and he kept him as an apprentice. Janusz spent every weekend in the tavern with a glass of beer. He drank little. He liked listening to tavern conversations and various news more. Many townspeople, as well as passing merchants, used to come to the tavern, 
so life here was in full swing. And Janush really liked it here. Spending his day off at the inn was his only entertainment. In general, his life was arranged, which Janush was quite pleased with. And so it had been going on for two years now, ordinary and almost serene, until Janush fell in love. Once on an autumn Sunday evening, Janush, as usual, looked into the tavern. Which this time turned out to be unusually empty. After drinking a glass of beer and not waiting for anything interesting, Janush got up and went home to his shack in the workshop. It was already quite dark, the streets were empty, which undoubtedly inspired some horror and fear. Janush hastened. But when he heard the clatter of horses' hooves behind him, he shuddered. Paused and turned around. A black carriage pulled by a black horse rode behind. Having caught up with Janush, the carriage stopped, the door opened, and a young girl, dressed in a black funeral dress, came out of the carriage to join Janush. Her face was white, so she was like a ghost, but she was very beautiful. So beautiful that Janush immediately fell in love with her. The beauty came close to Janush and, looking into Janush's eyes with her bottomless black eyes, whispered softly and tenderly, Hello, Janush. Are you happy to see me? I managed to escape from my father that evening, because I really wanted to see you. Janush was not only bewildered by such a confession, but also seriously scared. His knees trembled. Perspiration rolled down his face. It seemed to him that he himself had turned white with fear, and became as white as a beautiful unfamiliar girl. But this mysterious stranger so captivated and charmed the young man with her unearthly beauty and her gaze that Janush had no choice but to answer. Yes, I'm very glad to see you. I was waiting for you, and you came. Janush, tell me, do you love me? Yes I love you. I love you very much. Janush, I must confess to you. I made up my mind. I decided to run away from my father, and run away with you. I really want this. Janush, really. Because I love you very much. Yes, yes, said Janush, stunned and distraught with love. Let's run away from here, once and for all. Next Sunday I will be waiting for you at St. Martin's Cathedral, at our usual place. In a week we will have time to prepare everything, as agreed. And then we will run away together. Good. Yes. I'll wait for you. Near the cathedral. The beautiful stranger kissed Janush passionately on the lips, and then quickly jumped into the carriage. And the carriage instantly rushed along the street until Janush had time to recover, and only the echo of the clatter of hooves was heard for quite a few minutes. Janush could not come to his senses for about twenty minutes, and then rushed home at breakneck speed, wrapped himself in his bed, and sobbed quietly almost all night. The next morning, the master noticed that something strange was happening to Janush. He was kind of pensive, confused, and the work did not go well, everything fell out of hand. When the master asked what had happened, Janush only apologized and replied that yesterday, apparently, he went through a little in the tavern and did not get enough sleep at night. In the following days, Janush worked hard, hemming the soldiers' uniforms impeccably. However, he was still thoughtful and reluctant to talk. The master even got worried and tried in every way to find out what was happening with his apprentice. But Janush never said anything. Maybe he fell in love, devil, the master blew. And he was right. And Janush, meanwhile, was counting the painful days and hours when, finally, Sunday would come. And Sunday has come. As usual. Janush dropped into the tavern for a final glass of beer. There were not many people in the tavern, a few familiar onlookers, townspeople peasants, to whom Janush joined. 
and just arrived in time for the story that the local storyteller and eccentric Carol began to tell. Oh! Listen to another story. I'll tell you, also about love. It was, believe me, Wojtek, and worse than your unbridled drooling. Listen here. Many years ago the mayor of the Burgomaster was in our Prague castle. And he had a daughter, Agnieszka, a clever and beautiful woman, with whom everyone fell in love. Dad loved his daughter very much. And therefore, almost did not let her out of the house. He said that when he found a suitable and worthy groom for her, then only his heart would calm down. But while Dad was looking for a groom, Agnieszka, meanwhile, fell in love with the modest tailor Jan. They fell in love with each other and met secretly for a whole year. And then one day Agnieszka confessed to her dad that she fell in love with a tailor. The burgomaster was very angry then. Said that he would never allow his daughter to marry some poor fellow and ragamuffin, and locked her in a room with a lock. But Agnieszka turned out to be an obstinate girl. Was not afraid of her father's threats and with the help of her nanny, she ran away from home. When the father found out that his daughter had escaped, he asked the old nanny about everything and rushed to catch up with the fugitives. And the couple in love, meanwhile, were in the cathedral, where they agreed to meet. So that later they would leave the city together. And as soon as they were about to leave the cathedral, the embittered burgomaster entered and, in a fit of rage, stabbed both fugitives. And then he committed suicide, because he realized that now there would be no life for him either. Here's a story. A. You want to surprise us? We have already heard this story a hundred times. I'll tell you something else. One of the men jabbed. And while the drunks, noisily, interrupted each other to tell their even better story, Janush, meanwhile, slipped out of the inn unnoticed. My God! Save me! Janush stammered. From the story he heard, Janush was so scared that he even pissed into his pants. He was so scared that all his love instantly disappeared. And Janush did not go to the cathedral that evening. He quickly fled home, and in the following days he did not wander the evening streets of Prague, so as not to meet some ghost. Love under the grey firmament. Paris. Late 20th century. Isabel was an orphan. But since she was an extrovert, she didn't suffer because of it. There were no problems in the orphanage. She even remembered with pleasure and felt nostalgic for those times. Moreover, on the day of her majority, she inherited a small but good apartment in the center of Paris from her deceased parents, whom she had never seen, even in a photograph. She got some material values, but no memories. When trying to find out something about relatives from the director of the shelter, who had been in this position for ten years, he only threw up his hands, because everything was only documented, and nothing more. Except the names of the parents and the fact that they died in a car accident, could not find out. Realizing how difficult and confusing this bureaucratic red tape is, Isabel simply stopped trying to find out, because it was not interesting. And life went on, meanwhile, and life was quite eventful. So, Isabel was an independent, interesting, mobile girl. She worked as a maid at the Hilton Hotel, so she earned good money, since it was a rather expensive, prestigious hotel. And in her free time, Isabel also danced tango, it was her favorite hobby. A real passion, and, of course, she was a star on the San Bernard Embankment. She still did not dare to acquire a family. She thought that it was too early for such a responsible step. However, she had a lover, Jacques. They met on San Bernard and danced beautifully. Jacques and Isabel communicated with each other easily and naturally, and between them there was not just love and passion. 
but also mutual understanding and friendship, which is rare in our life, so they could be called an ideal couple. On that September day, Isabel drove to work as usual. She started cleaning the third floor at 10 o'clock. In the 310th issue, a surprise awaited her. As she removed the bedding from the bed, she heard a voice behind her. Mademoiselle. You have to help me. Startled with fright, Isabel quickly turned around to see whoever had said those words. There was a beautiful madam in some kind of luxurious evening black dress and a sheepskin coat. Having looked closely at madam, Isabel recognized her. Since a well-known person in Paris stood in front of her, Madame Reno, the wife of a famous Parisian politician, Senator Pierre Reno, who became famous for his scandalous antics and statements. And Madame Reno was a famous socialite, a trendsetter and a trendsetter of many Parisian women. I beg your pardon, Madame, Isabel said blankly. I apologize for frightening you. Madame continued, nervously lighting a cigarette, leaning her elbows on the back of the chair. But this is a matter of life and death, do you understand? They are hunting me. Yesterday I managed to escape here at the hotel. But it seems that today I have already been identified. I realized this in the morning, in a restaurant. Mademoiselle, you have to help me get something out of here which is why I'm being persecuted. What is this? Madame took out of her purse something small, rectangular in shape, like a box. Wrapped in a paper bag. Isabel accepted the package. Madame hugged Isabel and quickly said, Thank you very much, my dear. I will thank you very soon. Now get out of here. Get out of the hotel immediately. I will definitely contact you tonight. What is your name? Isabel Perignon. Thank you, dear Isabel. Now run. Hardly understanding what all this meant. Isabel did not ask unnecessary questions and did what Madame had asked her to do. She asked the hotel administrator to leave work, citing terrible headaches and asked her partner Marie to complete the cleaning on the third floor. They sympathized with the poor thing and let her go. Isabel left the hotel with the usual emergency runway for the staff. Trying not to draw attention to herself, Isabel hurried to the subway. She did not notice anything suspicious, she did not notice any tail behind her, but her heart still beat very often. When Isabel came home, she closed all the locks on the door, put the phone next to her, sat in front of the TV and waited for the evening. Without waiting for a call from Madame, she fell asleep. In the morning she woke up early with disturbing thoughts. What's going on with Madame? Why isn't she calling? Isabel made herself some coffee and began looking at the morning paper. On the front page of the newspaper, she read the following headline. Madame Reno has been killed. Madame Reno was murdered at the Hilton yesterday afternoon. A body with a shot through the temple was found in the hotel room of the maid Marie. Senator Pierre Reno. Madame's husband, is currently not available. The police are trying to investigate this crime. After reading this news, Isabel was frightened and horrified. Turning on the TV and watching the news from the Hilton Hotel, Isabel's anxiety increased in earnest. Now she could not find a place for herself and constantly wondered. What should I do now? If I go to work, Isabel mused, I'll be interrogated. And what should I tell them? The truth? What if it will be very stupid of me? What if they start to haunt me? I need to know. I definitely need to know what's in this package. And then decide what to do. She pulled a paper bag out of her bag and opened it. It contained a small wooden box with a tight-fitting lid. Opening the box, 
Isabel found a folded sheet of paper and a key that looked like the key to a bank safe. Unrolling the sheet of paper. Isabel knew it was a letter. And not just a letter, but a letter addressed to her, Isabel. Dear Isabel. Due to recent events, I am forced to reveal my secret to you. Because in the future I will most likely never have such an opportunity. Isabel. You are my daughter. And you are a consequence of my true love in my life. But I gave birth to you at the moment when your father crashed in a car accident. I was a poor orphan, and the loss of the only person close and loved for me, my support, was a blow to me. I was very scared and did not know what to do. And how to be with you, how to feed and raise you with dignity. Just at that moment, a young, ambitious, promising politician Pierre appeared in my life. He then helped me a lot and offered to marry him. But I had to give up on you. And I made a choice. I thought it would be better for both you and me. And I think that I was not mistaken. All these years I followed you, and I saw how independent you are, how capable you are to overcome any difficulties. And I know for sure that you will survive under any circumstances. Because you are a smart and persistent girl. You look like your father. I don't know what's going on in your soul. Perhaps all your life you have lacked maternal love and support. Perhaps after reading this, you will curse me. But I am not asking you to forgive and understand me. You will decide for yourself how you treat me, to hate or forgive. I will only fulfill my last duty in this life. As for me, my husband and I have engaged in one cruel adventure in recent years. And for this, most likely, we will pay with our lives. You should not delve into this, and spread about this letter to anyone else either. At the very least, it will allow you to build your own life without looking back at the past. I just want to say that I have nothing to regret. I lived well and interestingly, it will be with me. Isabel. This is the key to the bank safe. The tag has a bank address and a cell number. My diamonds are kept there. What I have accumulated during my life. These diamonds are a considerable fortune. You will have to take it, of course, it will be useful to you. This is the last thing I can do for you. And anyway, I beg your pardon, Isabel. No. I have always loved you and wish you only happiness. Be happy. Catherine Reno. Isabel was shocked. Feelings overwhelmed her. But Isabel is a strong girl, she can overcome her feelings. No matter how many tears flow from her eyes, she will get up and move on. Isabel got up and went to work. To all interrogations of the staff and the police, she replied that she had not seen or noticed anything suspicious. And that her ailments are a consequence of her pregnancy. Yes. She said that she was pregnant and that she would get married soon and that she would no longer have the opportunity to work at the hotel and she would have to quit. And Isabel did not deceive anyone in this case. In the evening, when Jacques invited her to dance tango in San Bernard, Isabel got up and went to dance. And when Jacques confessed his love to her in front of everyone and offered his hand and heart, Isabel agreed, to applause, of course. And, of course. Isabel was the happiest person in the world at that moment, dancing a passionate tango when it was raining over gloomy Paris. Cabaret. Berlin. Mid-20th century. Baron Krauss was a very rich man. Therefore, he also had a certain power. From childhood he was accustomed to money and power, and he knew their value. And he was afraid to lose it. He did everything necessary to keep it in his hands, which, however, he did well. But, as befits a shrewd and original person, money and power were not his ultimate goal. He only used this as a tool for his individual needs. 
Realizing in time what strength the NSDAP party was gaining, the Baron supported Hitler in the elections with his money and did not lose. This game of roulette was won by him. When the Nazis came to power, the Baron, as an ally of the new ruling party, remained an influential tycoon, an untouchable person. And while a new order of things was being established in Berlin and in Germany as a whole, the Baron, meanwhile, went about his business. The Baron was a lustful man. The whole meaning of his life was depraved debauchery with booze. Even before the Third Reich, in the Weimar Republic, as a young man. The Baron spent his life in the most famous and expensive Berlin cabarets. And after the establishment of the Third Reich, the Baron's way of life did not change at all. He organized his own cabaret. Closed. For the elite, and besides, he made good money on it. Once a young and pretty girl entered this cabaret to work as a dancer. Her name was Martha. The Baron liked her so much that he immediately fell in love with her and desired. Less than a week later, at the Friday show, the Baron began to molest the beauty. I beg your pardon, dear Baron. Martha said, pulling her hand back, but I was hired here as a dancer, not as a courtesan. If I misunderstood something, then I think I will have to leave your establishment. Stupid. Do you really think, the Baron purred, that you can just take it and leave? Of course. I'm not going to stay here for a minute longer. Realizing that he was dealing with a proud woman. And becoming even more excited, the Baron decided not to stand on ceremony and not hesitate. He is used to getting whatever he wants and not taking any responsibility for it. Together with his two comrades, the Baron grabbed the kicking and screaming Martha and dragged her into a distant room. There, three bastards raped poor Martha. Broken and completely destroyed. Martha did not return home that evening. She committed suicide by throwing herself into the river from a bridge. A month later, when the Baron had already forgotten about this unfortunate incident, he was shot dead on the threshold of his house. This was done by Klaus, Martha's older brother, who deliberately escaped from the army and vowed to avenge his beloved sister. The police soon seized Klaus and the court, as a deserter and murderer, sentenced him to death. Klaus's last words were, the fiends who have nothing sacred won't last long. Be damned, burn in hell.